0: Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 25 and reading down to verse 37 and now Luke records for us these words and behold a lawyer stood up to put him that is Jesus to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life he said to him what is written in the law how do you read it and he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. He said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The next day he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God Indoors forever. Well, I am almost sure that we have all had the experience of either ourselves walking up to people having a conversation in the middle of the conversation, hearing part of the conversation, and then interjecting ourselves into it, not knowing the full context of the conversation, and then finding that we're embarrassed because we're speaking into something we didn't fully hear and understand. Or we have been people in that situation on the receiving end where we've been having a conversation with someone and someone walks up and interjects themselves into the conversation and uh, they haven't quite heard everything about it. And then they try to speak into that conversation and we feel the embarrassment for them. I'm usually in the first category. You're probably in the second category. I am certain we have all had that experience at some point in our life. And I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of those sort of experiences most people have had where they've come to it, they think they know it, there are organizations named after it, there are conversations in which people might say, hey, would you like to be a good Samaritan and do this for me? And all of us at some time in our life have approached the parable of the good Samaritan most certainly like Somebody walking into a conversation where they haven't realized the full context of the conversation, and so they've misunderstood the purpose of it, and they haven't really understood why it was that Jesus gave that story in the first place. We cannot understand the parable of the Good Samaritan without understanding the context in which it occurs. And as we look at that this morning, we're going to see that this account divides nicely into two sections. First, we're going to consider the lawyer's question. And then secondly, we're going to consider the Savior's answer. The context of the parable is in answer to a question that a religious theologian, lawyer, we might say, uh, was coming to Jesus and testing him with. Now, notice that Luke has been tracing the ministry of Jesus. And most recently, he has given us that intimate camo of the Savior turning to his father And rejoicing in his spirit and thanking the Father for hiding the gospel from the wise and the prudent. And revealing the truth of the gospel to those who are babes in understanding. That the revelation of the gospel is entirely of grace. It's entirely based on the sovereign working of God. That the Father and the Son together choose whom they will reveal the gospel to. And Jesus thanks and praises the Father for hiding it from those who think that they are wise and prudent and can in their own wisdom and human and fleshly and worldly understanding come to understand the mysteries of this life and the world to come. And it's as if now Luke is giving us an interrelated story. Here is a man who we could say thought himself to be wise and understanding. Here is a man who is coming to Jesus not with sincere motives, Here's a man who thinks he knows better than Jesus, and it's possible that he has heard Jesus make the statement that he made when the Savior said that the Father had hidden the truth of the gospel from the wise and the understanding, and it is very possible and perhaps even likely that what this man is doing, notice what Luke says, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? This man, again, is not a lawyer in the sense of lawyers that we think of. You know, There's the old adage, "No one likes a lawyer until they need a lawyer." And then they're very thankful for a good lawyer. Um, this is a man who is a religious lawyer. He is an ecclesiastical lawyer. He knows and has spent his life studying the Torah, the law of God. He knows those 613 laws. He is skilled in debating them. He is skilled in applying them. No doubt people from Israel came to this man, and if they had an issue, they would come and they would say, what does the law teach on this particular issue? I've had a dispute with my neighbor. He's taken a portion of my land. He's put a fence between it. What does God's law say? And this man was skilled and and is the sort of man that, that would have come in and would have been an arbiter and would have said, here is what God's law says, here's what you should do. And he, thinking himself wiser than Jesus, hearing what the Redeemer is saying about God hiding the truth from the wise and the prudent and revealing it to babes, he, thinking himself wise and prudent, stands up to test Jesus. Now that is vital to understanding the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, We cannot walk into this conversation without getting that. He is testing the Savior. By the way, it is never a good thing to test the Savior. I think I've told you this in the past. My my best friend, Stephen, uh, we were talking about how all the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees are constantly debating Jesus and testing him and and arguing with him and trying to trap him. And and Stephen said once, he said, it's never going to turn out good to argue with Jesus. Never turns out good. Um, It doesn't turn out good for this man. Uh, he comes to Jesus and notice the test. He, he says to him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. Now, that is the most important question that anyone could ever ask. There is no greater subject that could be on your mind than how am I to gain eternal life? That should be the most important question that passes through our minds. It is a question of ultimate destiny. Um, in that sense, it's a commendable thing. There are many people that uh, walk through this life uh, in spiritual blindness and darkness, spiritual deadness, as we ourselves have done, and they never ask that question. They, they allow themselves to believe all sorts of falsehood. Here this man is asking the really great question, um, and he knows it's the really great, great question. This is a man that knows God's word, and he knows that the greatest question is the question about eternal life, and what he shorthands as uh, the inheritance. And he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life now? The irony of his question is seen in the words that he puts together, because at one and the same time, he is giving uh, Jesus and us a, a sense of what he actually believes about the answer. He thinks that eternal life is based on what he must do, by his own works, and yet he puts together with that the idea of an inheritance. Now, just looking at that question, we ought to say, wait a minute, you don't do anything for an inheritance. If my sons ask the question, what must we do to inherit your debt, I'm going to say, you don't have to do anything. You're going to get all my debt. You're going to get to clean up the house. You're going to get to have an estate sale, and you don't have to do anything. You're my sons, and I I love you, and I want you to have that great privilege of inheriting all of my problems. But this man knows that the Bible has taught that God has promised an inheritance. He knows that God promised Abraham an everlasting inheritance. Inheritance is a gift. It's it's gracious. It's given. You don't do anything for it. And you see this man's self-righteous and self-centered and self-focused and works-oriented understanding, or I might say misunderstanding, of what the scripture teaches. The question itself, in one sense, is a rhetorical question. This man assumes that he knows the answer, and so Jesus, being the wise uh, savior that he is, uses that divine wisdom, and he says to this man, what is written in the law, how do you read it? Now, Jesus' initial answer to this man ought to strike us as noteworthy Jesus goes directly to the scripture there's no other place to go there's nowhere else you'll find an answer to the question there's nowhere else you should be seeking an answer to the question the only place where the question how do I gain eternal life can be answered is in the scripture and so Jesus points this man back to that section of God's Word that he he knew he knew so well and he says what is your reading of the law what does it say in the Scripture?" And the man, knowing exactly what God's word says in different places, answered Jesus with what we call the two great commandments. It is a summary of the moral law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Deut- Deuteronomy 6, 5, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 8. So he knows the two summaries of the two tables of the law, the first four commandments are bound up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the last six commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's very interesting. This man rattles those off. Again, he's not coming sincerely to Jesus. He's coming self-righteously. And yet he answers... His own question, in a sense, we could say correctly, if a man or a woman, and that's you or me, were to do something to gain eternal life, we would need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. You would need to do that perfectly. If you can do that, you can have eternal life. Um, Jesus tells that man that. Notice, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. So if you are to do something for eternal life, you must keep the whole law, and you must keep it with all of your heart, every second of your life, perfectly. That's what theologians call the legal conditions of the covenant. So why does the Bible teach that? Because God never lowers his standard of holiness. If God lowered his standard and said, just do generally good enough, he would be unholy and unjust. So that has to carry through all of human history from before the fall to after the fall, through all time, The demands of the law, the legal conditions of the covenant are ever present. What does God require of men and women and boys and girls to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? Now, it's Mother's Day, and we are celebrating our mothers. And as I thought about this and thought about my own godly mother um, and, and thought about the lawyer's question and Jesus' responses and the lawyer's answers and their interactions, you know, not one of us has loved our mother as we ought. Um, I welcome you into my home on any given day to observe our children being disobedient to their mother. Any day. You pick a time. You just show up. And you will see my three sons, Violating the fifth commandment, just like I did, just like you did. Not one of us has loved our mothers as we ought. And that means we're in trouble because God says you shall honor your father and mother, and He means perfectly. That's what God requires. Now, this lawyer feels the tension. He knows his question. He's testing Jesus. He's given Jesus a right summary of the legal conditions of the covenant. Jesus has now affirmed his answer to his own twisted and self-righteous question. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. But notice verse 29, and this is the really important thing. We can't miss this and get the good Samaritan. Notice verse 29. He, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. You see, he feels the tension. He, He now this is where this parable is really rich and very complex and multi-layered. This man ought to think about his own answer, and he ought to say, he ought to say, who then can be saved? If he had asked Jesus this question sincerely, and Jesus had said, that's right, he ought to say, who then can be saved? He, he feels the tension, but he doesn't answer that. He also ought to say, uh, if he's trying to justify himself self-righteously, you might assume he would go to one of the first four commandments and he might say, but, but what does Sabbath keeping really look like in this context? He ought to, he ought to think about his relationship with God and, and how much wrong he's done and how much he's failed in that first great commandment, the first four commandments. And, and he ought to see his failings and, and you would expect he would try to find a loophole, as a good lawyer would do, find a loophole there, but he doesn't. He, he thinks he's kept that first law, and he goes to the second law, and he realizes that there's a deficiency in his soul, and he, wanting to justify himself, says to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? So um, he's processing this, and he's thinking, well, whew, loving everyone as I love myself is not within the reach of my ability, certainly not within the sphere of my accomplishments, Um, maybe, uh, maybe Jesus will affirm my idea that my neighbor is just those in my synagogue, or maybe my neighbor is just those in my denomination. Maybe my neighbor is just those within my ecclesiastical affiliation, largely considered. Maybe my neighbor is just those in my village. Maybe my neighbor is just the Jewish people on the whole. So he is... He's trying to find a loophole to you shall love your neighbor as yourself and lower the standard to something manageable because he knows it's not attainable and that he hasn't really attained it. Now, uh, Sinclair Ferguson has helpfully said this lawyer was concerned only with systems that would safeguard him from sacrifices. Um. Before I do go any further, I do want to say this. Um, Augustine, the early church theologian, formulated a doctrine of um, what we might call moral proximity, in which he said, Look, it's impossible for you to do good to everyone at all times. That's impossible. I know everybody on the internet tells you it's possible, it's not. I know the news, I know. You watch the news. And you feel like, I just need to go, I don't know, pick a place, Indonesia, and do some good. And and Augustine understood it's not possible, and so there is a principle of moral proximity that we are to love our neighbor wherever they are, but within close proximity to us. And I think the Bible teaches that. God does not expect you to try to tackle every one of the world problems. That's impossible. Um, But We can be very skilled in taking something like that just like the lawyer and trying to find a moral loophole that doesn't exist biblically as to why we're not helping those within that moral proximity to us. And we can say, well, they don't deserve our help because they didn't do this, and if they would get a job, then they would do this, and if they would do this, then they would do this, and I don't need to help them because I have to do this. Um, We are very much like this lawyer by nature. Um, especially conservatives. I want to say that as somebody who might identify, I guess, as a conservative. Um, These were conservative theologians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers. And they were very good at taking principles, and they were very concerned, as Ferguson said, with systems that would help them to set aside their sacrifices that God required of them. Now, with that in mind... I want us to consider very briefly um, the, the, the story. You know the story. I'm sure any one of you could come up here and you could rattle off this story. And you could tell it with emphasis and nuance, with very little preparation. And there's, and, and there's only one problem. Um, most of us have entered into this conversation without considering that context. And, and here's the problem. This this account of the Samaritan helping the man by the side—it never happened. Never happened. It's a story. Um, it's a—it's a law parable that Jesus is telling to this man who's testing him self-righteously. So whether or not it happened in time and space, we—we we don't know for sure. It may be that Jesus experienced this, and, and maybe these were real people, but. As far as we understand, this is a story that Jesus is telling this man to teach him a valuable lesson and to teach us two valuable, very valuable lessons. Now, we've considered the context. The man is wanting to justify himself. Um, You know, before I do look at this, I want to say this. I I don't know who came up with the title The Good Samaritan. It's not in the Bible. Um, It's in your headings. It's not God's word. God didn't put the heading in your Bible. Um, I actually think if we did title it fresh today, we would need to call it the perfect Samaritan. Because what this man does um, is beyond the pale of our understanding and comprehension. He doesn't just do good in a general sense. He acts with perfect mercy and compassion towards someone who ought to be considered his enemy, to whom he could benefit from, from whom he could benefit nothing and this one who desperately needed that mercy and that kindness. Now, Jesus tells the story, and the man says, "Who is my neighbor?" Jesus says, uh, "There are a man going down. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. Now, these would have been like the thieves who were crucified next to Jesus, and they may have been the thieves um, if there was some sort of historical background to this." Um, and they beat the man. They robbed him. They beat him to a bloody pulp. They left him on the side of the road, and he was about to die. If he had been left there any longer, he was left for dead. And that was a very common occurrence on that stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That happened very often. Um, it, it would be like going to a, a sort of sketchy part of a major city in the U.S. and you knowing that you're probably going to get robbed if you go there. And and this man does get robbed. He does get treated viciously. He is the object. He's a victim of the harshness and the cruelness of of other wicked men, and he's left to die. And now another cameo comes to light, and in verse 31, notice Jesus says, Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So he doesn't just say he passed by him, but he he, he went out of his way not to go out of his way to help this man. So... He saw the man, he processed it, and he went as far around as he could so he didn't get near him. Now Jesus says that a Levite, it's another of the family of the priest in Israel, when he came to the place, saw him, he passed by on the other side. So they both do the same thing. Uh, We don't know why these men did what they did. It could be that they were running late for a, uh, a synagogue service that they had to leave. lead. It may be that they thought the man was already dead. That's probably not the case. It is likely that they were acting in what they understood to be the teaching of God's law that if you touched um, a dead person you would be ceremonially unclean. And especially for a priest or a Levite who were functionally pastors in the church, they couldn't They couldn't go and fulfill their functions in the religious calling for a week until they had been purified from the ceremonial uncleanness that they contracted by touching a dead person. That's that's likely what they're processing. But they are doing the same thing that the lawyer was doing when he was concerned with systems that drew him away from sacrifice for the good of others. Um, you know, we are meant to see in this parable and Jesus' answer something of the innate mercilessness of men and women in this fallen world. I've always been struck when you read through the the catalogs of depravity in Paul's letters especially, such as Romans 1, that great catalog that talks about everything from um, extreme, unnatural base, sexual immorality... Um, down through all the idolatry that Paul lists in Romans one, worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, and then and then down into that very machine gun list of evils, and among those evils are unmerciful to parents, unthankful, and then just generally unmerciful. That's that's the very last thing that the apostle Paul puts in the catalog of depravity of natural men and women of whom we find ourselves by nature, you and me by nature are unmerciful. That's, that's in there with sexual sin. Unmerciful. So if, if it's going to call me away from my agenda and my uh, self-interest and my focus, helping someone else who is at the point of death Because if anybody needs our help, it's this man who needs help from us. Um, And and yet our hearts would be such, just like the Levites and the priests by nature, to try to find a way to go around and walk as far away from that as possible. Uh, It's a striking thought, isn't it? That when we think about our own sin, unmerciful is one of the descriptions. Um, Now, Jesus tells us in this account of one who comes to help, and he is the least likely candidate. He's the least likely person you would imagine would be merciful. Now, Jesus does something very skillful. Remember the lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? So the lawyer, even in that question, and you'll miss this if you don't, if you don't get this carefully, the lawyer, even in that question, is, is um, self-centered. Who is my neighbor? Who is neighbor to me? Isn't that interesting? Jesus is going to say to him, now which one was neighbor to this man? It's a very important turn in the narrative. So the man wants to know who is neighbor to me. Jesus is going to say, you should be asking the question, who am I neighbor to? Which one, he'll say at the end of this, was neighbor to the man who was wounded? And it's a Samaritan, and as we know, Samaritans were uh, foremost among enemies in Israel. We don't know a lot about where the Samaritans came from. There is some speculation that when the Assyrians carried off the ten tribes in the 8th century BC that they brought in uh, refugees and transplants to live in Israel and that they became intermarrying with the Jews, the half-breed that we know of as the Samaritans. That's a, that's a likely possibility they, they did not worship in Jerusalem. They had a hybrid worship. Uh, they would be something akin to uh, perhaps Roman Catholics today. It was synchronized religion. They would take a little bit of paganism, a little bit of other religions, a little bit of superstition. They would merge it with the truth, and they would have this amalgamated form of and perverted form of what is here Judaism. And the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. Remember, the woman at the well was surprised that Jesus, a Jew, was speaking to her, a Samaritan. And now, in the surprise of surprises, and this is almost, I hate to say it irreverently, but this is almost the punchline to the joke. This, this was not expected. Here is Jesus, a Jewish religious teacher. Yes, he is God overall. He is the God man, but he is To to all those around him, a rabbi, a teacher, and no one would expect the hero in the story to be the least liked, the most despised um, to the Jews, a Samaritan. If there was a historical setting to this, if this actually did happen, which we don't know that it did, all we know is it's a story, Uh, It's possible that this may have been one of the Samaritans to whom the woman at the well went and witnessed when there was that great Samaritan revival in John 4. And many of the men of the city believed when they heard the word of Jesus and they trusted in him and they were redeemed even while many of the Jews rejected him and were not. And, And maybe this is one of those Samaritans who had been converted and his life is reflecting that. And he sees this man beaten and wounded and dying on the side of the road. And he goes over and, and he does everything for this man. We don't have time to look at this, but I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to look very closely at the details. Verse 34 and following. He doesn't spare any expenses. He takes his possessions, his oil and his wine. He pours them out to, to, to put on the, the wounds of this man and to bind them up. And he gets his hands dirty. To bring this man out of his miserable condition. That's what mercy is. He goes and sees someone affected by sin. Affected by the fall. Mercy is the love of God manifested to those whose lives have been wrecked by sin. And bringing them out of the mess of that sin. And drawing them to himself. And binding them up and healing them. And restoring them. And caring for them and nurturing them. And that Samaritan does all of that. He puts them on his own donkey. He doesn't drag him behind the donkey. He takes him to an inn. He searches out a place where he can stay. He finds the innkeeper. He spends the night with that man. He doesn't just drop him off on the front door at the emergency room. He doesn't just roll him out of the car and drive away. Some of us might think that would be merciful to do to someone like this. He takes him to the inn. He stays with him. He spends the night with him. He tells the innkeeper, I'm going away. Here's money to care for this man. When I come back, I will pay you anything else. That's unbelievable. He doesn't know this man from Adam. He knows nothing about this man. There's no vested interest. There's nothing he's going to gain from caring for this man. He is willing to spend his money, his time, his energy, his thoughts. He finds someone to care for him, and he says, I'm coming back to check on him. That's why I said this is the perfect Samaritan. Um, you know, when we think about this and we think about how we've been toward others who have needed our help, um, how convicting it is, how little we're willing to do to help others. Um, we are so often more like the priest and the Levite than the Samaritan. Um, now, I don't believe Jesus is giving this story so that you would leave this place this morning and say, I better get to work so God will save me and give me eternal life. That, that, that's, that's walking into the middle of the conversation and missing everything. He's giving this story to a man wanting to justify himself and justify his actions, why he's not being merciful. That man should have cried out for Jesus to save him. Now, there's a parallel. Do you remember in uh, the book of Acts when uh, Peter and John, I believe, are in prison? Oh, no, it's Paul and Barnabas. And uh, God breaks them out of the prison and the Philippian jailer is frightened. And God's going to save that jailer. And he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And he's not asking self-righteously. He's saying, what, how can I be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts chapter 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. He doesn't say, go keep the law. Go be radically merciful. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. Now, that is the only gospel there is. Um, The early church looked at the passage of the Good Samaritan and they would allegorize it. And and they would say, Christ is the Good Samaritan. They'd say, he comes and he pours out his blood. He spends everything. He finds us beaten and, and bruised and victimized by sin and our own sin, the sin of the world. He finds us, as Ezekiel paints that picture, of the, the the church laying wallowing in her blood. And Ezekiel, God says, I passed by you, I saw you in your blood, and I washed you off, and I cleansed you, and I drew you to myself, and I clothed you, and I made you beautiful. And, and you can understand how the early church uh, thought the point of the Good Samaritan was Jesus was saying he is the Good Samaritan, and he is the Good Samaritan. I don't think that's the ultimate point, but our, it's impossible for our minds not to go there. Who has done what the Samaritan has done and so much more than that than the Lord Jesus? Think of it. He he sheds his blood for people that don't deserve it, people who by nature are his enemies. He 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 has nothing to gain in one sense by doing this. He gives everything. He he withholds nothing to redeem us. He pours out his blood unto death. He then prepares for us, ministers to care for us, others to care for us. He brings us into the church, into the place of respite and care and rest and nurture. And then he says, I'm coming back and I'm going to receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. It's impossible for us not to say that Jesus exemplifies to the utmost what he teaches in the parable. And I I do think that the very first thing we should do this morning is we should say God's law is so much more demanding than I could ever imagine. If you've never felt your incredible failure to measure up to God's law, then you're probably not a Christian. I'm going to say that as straightforwardly as I can. If you've never felt condemned by the law of god you're probably not a christian because a christian one who has eternal life who inherits eternal life is someone who says i am undone apostle paul says not by works of righteousness we have done by the works of the law no flesh will be justified the law was given so that the transgressions may abound the law was our schoolmaster to drive us to christ so love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength Love your neighbor as yourself. I can't do that. I haven't done that. I need a savior. That's what the lawyer should have said. By the end of the parable, he still hasn't learned it. Jesus turns to him and he says to him, which one was neighbor to the man who was beaten? And he can't even bring up the name Samaritan. He says, and you get the sense where it's snarky. I guess the one who had mercy on him. Instead of saying, have mercy on me because I haven't been that man. I think that's the big picture to this account. Um, one of the unique things, and I just want to briefly consider this this morning, is that this may be the only parable Jesus to, says that has two meanings to it. I think the first is that it's a law parable. Uh, Phil Riken says the story of the Good Samaritan is a law parable. It shows us how much we need the love God has for us in the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has loving grace for law-breaking sinners who are not good neighbors. Yes, it's a law parable. It's just to show us we've not been good neighbors. Not I've probably been a good enough neighbor or I can do better. I have not been and God has loved me and Christ has come to heal me and redeem me and save me by his grace. Riken says, God has love and grace for law-breaking sinners who are not good neighbors. As we read about the Good Samaritan, we cannot help but be reminded of the saving work of Jesus who always practiced what he preached. He is the perfect heavenly Samaritan. Uh, John Newton wrote a hymn about this in which he outlined all the ways that Jesus parallels what this man does. It's a beautiful hymn. How good... sweet the good Samaritan, um, how sweet the Savior is to sinners like us. There is a second purpose to this parable, and it is found in Jesus's final words there in verse 37. Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Now, uh, the Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus does not mean if you're merciful enough, then God will be merciful to you. He means If you have received God's mercy in Christ, it will be evidenced in your life because you will want to be a merciful person. Now that does not mean, let me say this this morning. I think sometimes we have mistaken notions of being merciful. It doesn't mean running out and enabling everybody in their sin. Oftentimes we mischaracterize what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying, if you find someone in their sin... Encourage them to stay in it. Be very kind and compassionate to them. And by doing so, you will be merciful. He doesn't say downplay the severity of consequences of sin. What he's saying is if we see others whose lives have been wrecked by sin or the miseries of this life, we should have hearts that long to help them, to bring them out of it, to care for them, to build them up, to serve them, to pour out our time and our energy. And, and our lives, if we're Christians, if we have come to Jesus Christ, our lives— should be characterized by being merciful to others. Um, It's the twofold purpose of this parable. I want to ask you this morning as we consider these things, um, have you felt the conviction of your sin by the demand of God's law pressing down on you? Now, I was converted... 17 years ago this year, and one of the Ten Commandments, even though I should have been crushed by all of them, but one of them was just crashing down on my soul constantly, just condemning, condemning, condemning the weeks leading up to my conversion. And as I looked back at that, and I realized God was driving me into the arms of Jesus Christ, by condemning me by his law. By crashing his law down on me. And then once I come to Christ, I realized he's kept that law. He's paid the debt. He's removed the condemnation. I'm no longer under the law as a covenant of works. There is no justification or condemnation based on my performance of God's law anymore. Ever. But if a man or a woman is not in Christ, if you are not in Christ... Um, That law still hangs over you as a condemning power. And God wants you to feel the weight. If you have not loved God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, you should feel condemned. And you should say, what must I do to be saved? And you should flee into the arms of the Savior. That's it. That's the purpose. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Jesus is not saying, go be the good Samaritan and you'll be saved. So, I want to ask you if you've come to Christ having realized your sin before God based on your relationship to his law. Secondly, I want to ask if you are, those of you who have come to Christ, are you actively seeking to exhibit the mercy you have received from Christ in how you interact with others around you? You know, I become a merciful person by realizing the mercy that God has had for me in Jesus. That's that's how that works. It's not by trying harder. It's not by feeling guilty and being driven by guilt. Guilt is a powerful motivator, but it stops somewhere because it's not the ultimate. The ultimate is I have received mercy. I have been the man. I was beaten. I was bleeding. I was left by the road dead. And he came and had mercy on me. And now he sends me out and he says, go and do likewise. Isn't that beautiful? He says, here's what's going to motivate you. To be marked as a merciful person, you having received the mercy I give you. Remember, I'll leave you with this. Remember when Jesus is in the upper room with the apostles, the disciples, and Peter is resisting being served by Jesus. And he says, Lord, you'll never do this to me. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I think the point of this parable is if if you are not being served by Christ, you being the one who is wounded and dead in sins and him being the perfect, loving, merciful Savior to you, um, you have no part with him and you cannot be a merciful person. Um, The Lord Jesus wants to motivate us this morning to go from this place to seek to be merciful because we've received mercy from God. Let him who has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for this word that you have given us uh, through your Son in the scriptures. We acknowledge, our God, that we have not kept your law to any extent as you have demanded of us, We are grateful that you have driven us to your son, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you kept the law perfectly, that you loved the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We thank you that even when you hung on the cross, you kept that commandment to honor your mother by preparing a home for her in the house of the Apostle John. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you never sinned, that you were perfectly merciful to us that you poured out your life and gave everything for us how can we not in response to the mercy we have received uh, long to exhibit mercy to others and so lord jesus would you please uh, cause your mercy to abound in us that we may be merciful to others father would you give us grace that we might be the most merciful we can be in this life to those that have need around us keep us from seeking to turn our eyes the other way and pass by on the other way. Have mercy on us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.